Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. everybody and I am super excited to have with me Eric Springstead who is a Simone Weil scholar and his most recent work is Simone Weil for the 21st century which um, right there it's quite ambitious um, but I'm very excited to, to sort of crack this open. Um, Eric, just before we start, a little bit about yourself and maybe how you came to, to be interested in Simone Weil. Well, my interest in her began when I was a divinity student at Princeton Seminary. Um, I started taking some classes with Diogenes Allen, who is the uh, philosophy professor there. And I was particularly interested in Plato. Uh, he, at that time, had been very interested in Iris Murdoch. And Murdoch owed a lot to, to they. And so he was doing his background research in, in they. And he said, well, you know, you really ought to read this, this they person. Uh, she's got a lot of interesting things to, to say about Plato. Uh, well, I mean, I, I was hooked from the very beginning. And what was really fortunate about this was that he was too. And so I went on, did my dissertation on Vey with him. Um, but we continued really as colleagues um, in a lot of sharing for, for a long time. Uh, and I mean, it was really helpful having be able to do that journey uh, with somebody else and somebody else who had a really good mind. And, and as a result of that, uh, the two of us put to, with a couple of other people put together the American Vey Society. So uh, we were able to uh, pull in a whole lot of other people. Um, and so we created the opportunities to do the work and well, they Society just had its 41st annual meeting. Uh, so, so that clearly that work is going on and it's continued to be of interest to any number of people, you know, now in a second and third generation. So is it safe to say that your relationship with Alan, even though he was your, your major professor, was somewhat collegial because you were both kind of coming into the reading bay at the same time? Yeah, very much so. Um, Dick was uh, Dick was a terrific teacher. I think people at Princeton Seminary uh, always understood that. Uh, but he could also be a little fearsome uh, at times. <laughs> uh, he, as he said, he didn't suffer fools gladly. And my, as my wife once said, he tended to look for fools. <laughs> Uh, you know, making sure there weren't any in the room. 
but it was, it was a wonderful relationship because it was collegial all this time. Uh, in fact, we ended up doing three books together and, uh, and some articles as well. Uh, so, it, so it was a long-term uh, collegial relationship, a lot of collaboration. Um, and we also had our own interests in this. So it was, it was always enlightening and, uh, and helpful because it wasn't just the same thing. You know? Yeah. Um, well, I think just, just I want to just jump in. So the title of your book is Simone Weil for the 21st Century. So what does she have to say? What does she have to say to us in this liminal time? And um, I, you really, you really, you really hit it out of the park. So I guess what I'd like to start with is the the distinction that she makes in the need for roots between obligation and rights. That seems to be kind of one of the pillars the book is built on. Yeah, um, that's it's a terrifically important distinction. And as far as we can tell, it really is pretty much original with her, at least the way that she puts it. There's, we can find a couple of people who've said something like that, but certainly haven't taken it in the direction that she did. Um, the Need for Roots was a book that came out of her work with the Free French. And they actually were very interested in trying to put some sort of spiritual underpinning to a reconstitution of French society uh, as it would be conceived after the Germans were, were kicked out. And what she was doing was really turning the perspective around. I mean, there's a sense in which she isn't against rights. Uh, I mean, those are always gonna be there and they're really they're sort of the objective side of, of obligations. But what she wa wanted to do was to switch from that sort of third person perspective to a first person perspective, which, which is what obligations are. How do I think about my relationship to this other person? Is it a matter of my thinking what they owe me? Uh, or is it a matter of my seeing them as a person and having an infinite um, obligation to them? I mean, rights, she realized, are very much specific to any particular culture. I mean, we like to talk about human rights. We like to say that they're God-given. We like to assume that uh, they're there from the very beginning. But you then look around at different cultures and what is considered a right here, very different uh, somewhere else. I mean, during the years of the Cold War, we assumed that you had the freedom to express yourself, the freedom to religion. Uh, and we looked at the Soviet Union and we said, ah, you know, people are violating human rights. And they would look at our unemployment rate and say, no, no you got a right to a job. Um, and we may have not so good jobs, but everybody's got a job. Mm -hmm. um, so, so rights can be very specific and you can also run out of them pretty quickly. Uh, they used to go to 
uh, when she was in Marseille during the, during the war, she would go to court cases and watch them being tried. Uh, and she, she noted, you know, how you could, by pure procedural justice, respect a person's rights, and yet that person could walk out of the courthouse and say, nobody heard me. Mm. Nobody took me seriously. Mm-hmm. And so, so rights are wonderful in a certain sense, but they're very limited. And what she wanted to do with obligations is put a permanent spiritual underpinning uh, in our relations to other people and to get us to think in, in that first person perspective towards other people. And she's also very clear that there are whole classes of people for whom the question of rights doesn't even obtain. So she gives that wonderful example of the comparing the, the guy who's dickering with the customer about the price right. of his vegetables. And he says, you know, I, I don't have to pay you. I can pay you. you. I can charge whatever I want. These are my vegetables. I grew them. That such is my right. But then she compares that to what today we would say is a young woman who's taken into human trafficking and for whom the question of rights is moot. Yeah, I mean, she, she can't say to her captor, oh, you're violating my rights. I mean, right. you know, right. it, it's a ridiculous statement uh, in that situation. And I think that is right there. You have something really to ponder today where, you know, we have so many people that are homeless living on the streets question of rights is really kind of secondary to food and sleep and safety. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, th- th- think about how, how that, how we could shift perspective. I mean, we, we think we need to respect their rights. So we provide to a certain degree. Uh, I mean, I had a church in New York and church had a, had a homeless shelter. Um, you know, and we were doing what we could, but yet what really needed to happen was not just making sure sort of that they were taken care of in terms of basic needs. We needed to change our attitude completely uh, about how we treated people who were outside the main. What were our obligations to them as simply human beings? Yeah, what kind of society were we going to be? Mm-hmm. And so this is one of these wonderful places where the political crosses definitely into her more uh, spiritual or even mystical thought, where she really links the sense of obligation to the capacity of attention, meaning I will not have a sense of obligation towards you if I do not first create some sort of space inside of myself to, and you, you keep using this wonderful phrase of how we are supposed to bring the world into ourselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way she defines attention, uh, it's a matter of, well, the translation that we normally use in waiting for God uh, is something empty, void, and, ready to be penetrated. And yet the second one, the French word is disponible, 
which is a very common word. It's not oh, really? not particular. I had to I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and it's in Spanish as well, but it simply means availability. Mm. Um, and so what you're doing is you're making yourself available. Um, and I, I think you put it absolutely correctly when you said it's creating a space inside yourself. I mean, you've got to empty your stuff out for a while and give space inside yourself to the existence of somebody, somebody else, something else. Um, and that's attention. It, it isn't just noticing. Uh, I mean, and I think that a lot of they people uh, or people use this notion from her and say, well, we need to pay more attention. And sure, you, you do, but, but she wants to think you should need to do is you've got to get rid of the stuff of your own that's filling you up in order that another person can, can also occupy that space. And so it, that's linked to her idea of a decreation or a, or a decentering of oneself, which I right. would say is sort of the, I mean, you don't use this term, but that's sort of the mystical, the ascetic mysticism in her, in her thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things I point out uh, in the book, in the biographical chapter, is that for so much of her early life, I mean, she was a highly disciplined person and she wanted to make sure that in order to meet her moral obligations, see the world correctly, uh, that you needed some sort of discipline, uh, some sort of rigorous method by which to get rid of the false, uh, to be able to perceive the true. Uh, it, was, it was a matter of very much working on oneself. After her conversion uh, and her mystical experiences in 1937, uh, one of the things that we see in her work is that she starts talking in a very different way. Rather than sort of self-discipline um, in terms of you know, practice and so on, uh, she starts using what mystics use. That is a sense of learning how to be passive, uh, learning how to take in, uh, not how to construct. Um, and the chief notion after that of self-discipline is how in fact to suppress uh, the parts of the ego that keep you from learning and keep you from seeing other people. Mm. Which inevitably involves, especially I think learning is a great example, um, but the encountering the other it inevitably involves a certain suffering on our part. So when she her essay, oh. you know, right use of school studies, that a math problem can actually serve this purpose of emptying the yeah. self for the sake of the math problem. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, not wanting it to come out the way you want it to be, but just looking at it and saying, wow, you're too hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but I can also think of this in terms of, of teaching something like the humanities. Um, whenever you work with primary texts a lot, uh, and that was my undergraduate experience and 
tended to be the way that I taught. Um, one of the really tough things in reading uh, an author like Plato or Aristotle or Montaigne or you know, Thomas Aquinas um, is suppressing your own culture and time. Mm. It is so easy mm. to walk in and say, oh, this man's an idiot. You know, he's unenlightened on any number of things. And what you're doing is you're simply reasserting your own perspective. Uh, to learn to treat some of these thinkers as foreign and that you don't really know when you first go in what's going on in their heads until you pay attention to them uh, can be a truly enlightening experience. But I also find that it's very difficult for for students to do that. Uh, they, they have a hard time gaining a perspective that's much beyond yesterday. Mm. Do you feel that people, uh, scholars are doing that with Vader self now? Um, I, I, I mean, think I'm, so. I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, I think so. And, and sometimes in a couple of different ways. Um, some of it is with a thinker like Vey, she's been around long, long enough that now more and more people know her, her ideas get, uh, are out there, but they always get rounded off uh, the moment they, they're in the public forum. But I think there's another aspect to it as well, and that's very much the change in our own educational system. Um, what, the way that I was, trained uh, as an undergraduate and admittedly it was somewhat distinctive having gone to St. John's College which did nothing but, but primary works. Um, I found Vade absolutely wonderful uh, partly because I'd read the same books that she had uh. Uh, and we approached them in the same way. I mean there are a few colleges that's still think that Plato really is relevant. <laughs> right, right. You know, and so you, you suddenly find somebody who thinks the same way and you feel that you've found a kindred spirit. But what I find more and more is that, for example, philosophy students or uh, religion students don't know much history uh, of their own field. I mean, that used to be very much the case with science, it still is, but it's now becoming the case with humanities as well. So when students start reading they and graduate students, they don't know much about Plato. Uh, and so when she starts talking about it, uh, they, don't, they don't really understand where she's going, what the possibilities are. Yeah, I, I had the great good fortune of having a um... I didn't know how famous he was at the time. His name was Daniel Anderson. He was a Plato scholar. And I had him like freshman year in college. And I think that's the only reason why I was able to read Simone later. That yeah. little football <laughs> in Plato gave me a window into her. Yeah. I think that's very important. Now, um, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was, I was thinking that one of the areas where I think she's hard for a especially the 21st century reader, is something that you talk about in the book, is how she stresses this, this thing of the impersonal. Mm 
And that seems to really go against the grain of, you know, a culture of identity politics, certainly. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, the whole idea of putting aside the ego, uh, I think within Western liberal thinking uh, very much goes against the grain. I mean, the basis of our political thinking, and this isn't only America, I mean, it's, it's pretty much all of the North Atlantic region, is the idea of individual choice. I mean, there is no definite good. Uh, the good is up to the individual to choose. And then we apply procedural rules, such as rights, to make sure that we don't run into each other and hurt each other uh, while we're pursuing our individual goals. And again, that's what she wants to, to reverse. Um, the, the self should not be a constant chooser. Uh, of goods. It should be contemplative uh, of the good and mystery that's lying out there, but that we don't see because we're pursuing our own projects to the exclusion of others. Yeah. It seems, I'm reading uh, another guy who's got a background not unlike your own. Uh, his name is Bruce Rogers Vaughn. He has a book called Care of Souls in the Neoliberal Age. Huh. And he talks about, he calls them the three Ds. He got this from somebody else, but he says, there's a de-institutionalization going on where whether it's church, synagogue, after school sports program, marriage, all these institutions are eroding. And with that comes uh, a loss of a certain kind of identity that was pretty basic to human culture generally. And so you're left with this, I choose my identity, I brand my identity. Um, but he says it's really a de-individualization because when, my, when I lose that sense of identity that comes out of relationship, he says the only, the only thing left now is the market, is regulating the identity. And so he says we have these liquid identities now that are sort of perfect for late stage capitalism where you're always buying something and changing your whatever, you know, on, on a whim, changing your identity on a whim. Um, so she just seems so counter to that. And I think that I, when I was reading you, I, what I was really struck by is the way you addressed um, in relation to that levels of meaning. <laughs> and I'd never really seen anyone work with it that way. So could you talk about that and talk about how rights occupy that central level? Um, and there's actually a couple levels above this for her? Yeah, uh, and in fact, the way that you put it in, in the summary of that book, it, I think was excellent because I think that she very much would have subscribed to that sort of thing, that, <clears throat> that our identities uh, ourselves get created within the social push and pull uh, of the marketplace. Um, and she doesn't think that that's, well, I mean, it's entirely natural. Uh, and we develop laws and rules in order to make that more or less just. I mean, that's what, what rights are about. That's fine. Uh, but she points out 
those are values of the middle level. Uh, they only go so far. Uh, they only go so far in terms of what we think we need to do for other people. Uh, they only go so far in terms of what we need, to, what we think of we need to do for ourselves. Uh, do we have a do we have a deeper destiny? Mm. Uh, is there is there more that we can think? Uh, is there a mystery out there that we can lay ourselves open in front of uh, with some sense of reverence? I mean, the marketplace gives has no sense of reverence whatsoever um, unless you count idolatry uh, reverence. Um, and it's not as if she's simply trying to say, well, this is one against the other. Uh, they each have their, their own place. I mean, the marketplace is going to be the marketplace. But what sort of person are you going to be when you go into it? Uh, are you going to have some, are you going to be truly centered in something other than the push and pull of economic forces? Uh, and if so, you can resist them when, when they're going in directions that are not humanly helpful. Uh, so, so in that sense, we really need to think that there are higher levels. Uh, I'm afraid that an awful lot of times we start talking about these as hierarchies and then we hate hierarchies. Right. <laughs> right. Everything has, has to be equal. Um, I mean, I was just reading a book on spiritual contemplation and it was by somebody who I think was is actually pretty good. But in the way she writes, she's constantly having to bow to all of the other idols of the tribe. Well, oh, this, this doesn't take away your individuality. Oh, this doesn't mean that you really have to spend time away from your other duties and so on. I mean, it's an attempt to have everything. And then what ends up happening is that our spirituality, it's utterly compromised and just becomes another item in marketplace trading. Yeah, commodified. There's a, so these higher things, these, the, the good, the true, and the beautiful, that we can only be in some sort of uh, consent or passive relationship to, um, that, that, that dovetails with her biography in a certain sense, doesn't it? In that she had one of these, um, one of her conversion experiences. You, you wrote about it. You said, up to a certain point, she felt that the question of God was insoluble, insolvable. Therefore, she left it alone. And so that's the way of saying she, her thinking was sort of on that middle sphere. But then... Was it the time when she felt just the, the urge to drop to her knees? Is that when it happened? It actually, I think, was the experience of personal visitation of Christ uh, when she was at Solem. Uh. Uh, because she pointed out there that she, she realized that she could now conceive how perfect love was possible in the midst of suffering. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, there. So, 
the intellectual problem, does God exist, you know, is evil a defeater of uh, the idea of the existence of God, that works at a certain level, uh, a purely intellectual level, and the, there are serious problems. There. But you suddenly realize that there's a very different level. Uh, and it's not entirely intellectual. Uh, it's, a, it's a level of love and contemplation. And you realize that it would be possible to love perfectly even when one was suffering. Uh, and Christ was, was the great example. Now that didn't mean that you could go back and say, all right, now I've got, now I've got the intellectual problem solved. I know how to, how to do the problem with evil. Yeah. Um, but it does mean that you look at the world and you go, love wins. Uh, I, don't, I don't care what, what the particular items are here. I have the confidence that love wins and is in charge. Such, now we're into the enormous challenge of Simone Weil, because she says, once again, you, you do this very well. She says, uh, matter obeys necessity and necessity obeys God. Therefore, to love necessity is also an implicit form of the love of God. Absolutely, yeah. And um, our Western minds are like, no, shit, we got to fix something. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, right now I'm, I'm working on um, a section in the Need for Roots where she's talking about science and, and ultimately providence. And she says, one of the things that is keeping us from a truly great civilization is, is our notion of science. And the reason she says that uh, is because she says, science has left us looking at the universe as if it were nothing but force. Um, that, and, and she quotes Hitler to that effect. You know, don't be an idiot if you, you know, thinking there's anything else. Force is what does it, and that's, that's how you win. And she said, as a result of that, our sense of justice is, is degraded. Now, she doesn't want science to prove justice. I mean, she, does, she doesn't think that's the case. But she wants science to recognize that, in fact, what they're studying may well have been formed and shaped in the way that we see it uh, by something beyond matter and force. Um, and she, she isn't expecting science scientists to be theologians, uh, but I think what she's expecting is that they give us a way of looking at the universe so that we can contemplate it and actually think of that it, there is some inspiration in it that comes from somewhere else. Yeah, I got the impression that from reading your book that she would say that if a scientist had some sort of aesthetic uh, sense of beauty, that if he, if he made beauty more, or he was more cognizant of beauty when he was doing science, this would do that. And of course, there are scientists who are like that. Um, you know, the one I think of right away is like Teilhard de Chardin, but he's a priest and a scientist, but... 
Yeah. Yeah, and beauty is, is precisely what gives it away. When you look at the universe, and if it's just force, you know, there's nothing to it. If you have a sense of reverence and awe uh, because of its beauty, there's something more to it. Um, the problem is, and, I, and many scientists actually start science and have that feeling. Uh, I've been in a number of science theology discussions in which that's always the beginning, you know, that sense of awe of the universe. And then it goes nowhere after that. I mean, the scientists have no interest in what the theologians have to do. They want to get, get a method that will help them solve problems. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, many times scientists begin with that wonderful sense of awe, um, and then they never serve it. Yeah. Do you think that's often because it's so quickly co-opted to utilitarian or economic ends that you, you have to go work for a biotech firm or something? Yeah, I, I mean, I honestly think so. I mean, I remember having a discussion with my nephew many years ago who was a PhD student at the time at MIT. And he was, of course, of the opinion that well, well, we only, I only work on what I'm interested in. You know, I mean, it's sort of pure intellect. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> right. he ended up after 30 years later, uh, after working for 3M, which was his dream job, he was sick of it. He, got, <laughs> he made enough money, he, he quit, and he um, bought a crash hauling business up in Northern Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> and he got to drive around the country of Minnesota. He got to drive around and he could ski on the weekends. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so yeah, that reminds me that another thing that you got, you know, what I, another thing I liked about the book was unlike a lot of the scholarship, you would digress into other thinkers as a way of illuminating some aspect of Bayes' thought. And I can't remember if you were talking about a specific thinker, but when you talked about poetry, when you talked about that this is essentially um, a poetic relationship to the universe, me, and, and the, way, the way you, you either cited somebody or said, the poet does not write a poem about the tree, the poet in some sense puts himself or herself lower than the tree. It lets the tree speak. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what, what can be said about science can <clears throat> also be said about art. I mean, there is a beauty of the world and the scientist is to try and give us some sort of representation of that so that we can contemplate it. She thinks good art um, is very similar, that sort of in, in, in a microcosm, it's reproduced a sense of wholeness and of purity and connection of all sorts of various disparate parts. I mean, which is what the universe is like, but really good art does that. And she thinks, there's only a few true, truly terrific artists like that. I mean, within, uh, within the realm of poetry, 
Shakespeare's King Lear is one that she would constantly uh, cite. But I mean, it's one way of thinking about art. You know, an awful lot of art is for effect. And yeah. there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Um, <laughs> you want to feel better. Well, you, you go listen to your favorite album. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> but I, so, so I don't think you have to worry about that. But I mean, I think you need to recognize that there is a kind of art that it can really point us towards the transcendent. Um, and it demands of us that, that, that attention and that self-emptying in order to even apprehend it. Yeah, and in, in fact, it, it actually has the ability maybe to create that attention. Push you. Um, you know, you, you have your projects, you go in to a museum and you see uh, a truly astounding painting or, or you go to a play uh, and see Shakespeare's uh, King Lear. And without you ever thinking about it, without it, you're intending this to happen, you know, it just it takes your breath away, <laughs> as we yeah. say. Um, and suddenly something's opened up in you. And I mean, it suspends the, your ego despite your will. Um, and she said, in that regard, she calls beauty God's snare, God's uh, trap for the yeah. soul. Because once that's been introduced to you, if you don't betray it, uh, that can begin a lifelong journey. I mean, it's not an instant transformation. It's suddenly realizing there's a different way of looking at it. There's a different way of living. Um, and that seems to be related. I mean, this is wonderful because everything sort of starts hanging together. Um, there was this other author that I'd never heard of that you cited. Um, this is kind of related. Was this economist, Michael Sandel? Um, actually teaches politics and government at Harvard, uh, okay. political, political philosophy. And you're saying that, he's saying that um, if we put, if we don't let, uh, how to put it, um, certain virtues are no longer virtues once they become commodified. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that, that applies to these aesthetic things as well. Sure, absolutely. And, and I think artists realize that. They will say, oh, well, you know, <laughs> if this is art and it's been so commercialized, let me do anti-art, um, which is one way of, of doing it. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, pay attention and, and actually produce something inspired. Right, right. And so these higher values, by their very nature, defy commodification. They do. Uh, or no, they need to be respected uh, because to commodify them is to sort of obliterate their existence uh, in our lives. Uh, and I think it's possible to, to obliterate it. I mean, we can, we can take beauty and turn it into a commodity. We can take justice, 
so that it doesn't demand much of us. Uh, we can take worship. Um, it, as Gandhi said, there is no worship without sacrifice. Uh, and you look at an awful lot of American religion and they are working very hard at making sure that you can do worship without sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it just feels like the market has swept up all things spiritual and now we are really, really at some crisis point. Um, I work in the field of recovery and we work, we try as most, as best we can to work on a spiritual or holistic basis. But, you know, the fact that so, so many people don't have insurance, the fact that uh, you can only give away so many free services, you know, you, try though you might, you're still hanging a price tag on something that really should be free. Um, it was for me anyway, it was free. Um, so it's, I wonder what she would really, how she would respond to what she's seeing now or what's happening now. Yeah, and I, I think that a lot of this goes to the heart of what she saw in the need for roots. What, what we really need to do with our communities is make, make of them a milieu or several milieu uh, is the term that she used, where in fact human beings can, can find value and where they can live it out. Uh, I mean, I don't think that we should even put it as can find value. Oh, good, I found a nugget. Now I can stick it in my pocket. A good part of a healthy community is the ability to live in it so that you can give. Um, I mean, so that you can be a generous person in it. And I suspect that in many of our communities, we'd make it very difficult to give. Uh, it's a it's a good idea that everybody's helped, but you know somehow I I can't do much about it, and and I think that that sometimes becomes one of the problems with strict socialism, um, and it is an issue that if it takes away from everybody's assumption that they need to do something themselves, that's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you simply assume that the government will take care of it. And then you complain, well, they're not doing enough. Right. Um, you've got, you know, for many institutional things, perhaps only the government's big enough to, to help solve some of those problems. But if you're not putting in time with other people in various other institutions, uh, you're not going to appreciate what really needs to go on. And she, she, she doesn't seem to think that the problem of community is something that you simply uh, intellectually re reflect upon and then have some sort of agenda. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, one of the problems is that we assume that we can be architects of community. And well, I mean, you used to have planned communities all over the place and <laughs> yeah. uh, particularly in the 60s and it destroyed neighborhoods and, and real community. Mm -hmm. um, now you, you, you can't do it as an outsider and by, by some sort of algorithm. Uh, communities need to be 
spiritually inspired, and then people will, will be creative and find ways of, of living together. Uh, because they learn how to talk, they learn how to push and to pull. And I think that you know, this was one of Sandel's points, and it, it's actually a point that he's, he's been making for several years. I mean, since the 90s, he probably was one of, has been one of the more important um, thinkers talking about community. Uh, just recently, he wrote a book that I think will be very tough for Americans to take uh, against meritocracy. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know we can we can argue against meritocracy in a certain sense, saying oh elites are getting getting stuff and you know poor people aren't. He's saying the very idea of meritocracy is is problematic uh, because in fact we make everything competitive. Right. Um, you know you look at high school students in the last generation. Uh, they're making volunteerism a, com a commodity uh, so right. they can get it on I, I, a college I, I, application. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it goes so against, you know, one of the things that I really love about Simone is when she's talking about how, um, you know, the idea of her being intellectually intimidated by anybody is just absurd to me. But the fact that yeah. she was in the shadow of her brother, right? And she never thought she would make the grade. And then she has the realization that it doesn't matter what your aptitude is. All human beings can have an intimate relationship with the good, the true, and the beautiful. I mean, that's radical. That's just wonderful. Yeah, and it, it isn't a matter of intelligence. It's again, a matter of love and attention. Yeah. And, and then when you wrote about, in, about the, the section on Benedict, what was very arresting was you saying that a lot of these virtues of hospitality and graciousness and all that flow organically out of the capacity of attention. Right, we absolutely. We have classes and create hierarchies. We just learn how to, what's the word? Depose, disponible, get to be available, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think, I think that's absolutely uh, right. I mean, I, an awful lot of, there's a movement has been for, uh, for a generation or more in philosophical ethics to no longer do utilitarianism and consequentialism uh, and the sort of mathematical calculating that goes into that, but to talk about uh, virtue theory, you know, that we need to develop virtues. And those are, and that's not necessarily um, a matter of figuring out a method and an algorithm by which to produce good. And I think that that's, that's all to the good. But I think what ultimately has to lie behind virtue theory uh, is, is something like attention. Uh, I mean, I think within the in, inner person, there needs to be much more of a transformation um, in order to actually do virtue theory correctly. 
So everything is sort of constellating around attention and what she calls decreation, what has to happen for me to be available. And, but yet Simone also, uh, this is part of her, her, for lack of a better term, her cosmology, that creation itself <coughs> is a emptying, it's a canonic emptying of God so that we may be. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that it needs to be stressed that in her talking about creation as an emptying of God, God did not create by power, uh, but rather by letting something else exist. Uh, that ultimately takes its um, point of application from the cross. Uh, I mean, Christ is the one who gave up everything and continued to love. And because that was possible, uh, because he did, that meant that um, force, and force was not able to destroy uh, what is most important in human beings, that is their love. And she then wants to weave that through the universe and say, that isn't just an exception there. Mm. Uh, she wants to say, this is the very fabric of the universe because this was what the creator did. Mm. Um, and so why wouldn't the creator create in the same way that he redeemed? Yeah. So there's a real, for lack of, I mean, she wouldn't say this, but there's a real doctrine of creation there. Yeah. 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 Um, so you've been traveling with her for over 40 years. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I don't mean to date you. Well, we're, we're pushing 50. <laughs> Wonderful. And what would you say over, is the state of vase scholarship or readership now relative to decades past? <clears throat> well, as we were talking about a little bit, um, before we started recording. Uh, when I first started and I did my dissertation um, in the late 70s, there, there was very little in terms of secondary literature. Uh, again, they was probably a really good person to do dissertation on because you could, you could do all your secondary research in a month or two. <laughs> mm. <clears throat> But it also meant at that time, there really wasn't a very coherent view uh, of how this all went together. I mean, everybody was really exercised one way or the other about her personal life. You know, was she self-destructive? Was she anorexic? Was she a saint? Um, and nobody was looking at her thought uh, very well. Um, a lot of stuff on her thought, just saw her as Manichaean. Uh, it didn't see how the various parts went together. And, and so there was the challenge <coughs> uh, in, in working on it. That's changed. Uh, I, I think we don't see some of the really gross misreadings that we saw in the 70s uh, of her. Um, it's become much more sophisticated. 
uh, it's more and more people are reading her too. I mean, it's really very interesting uh, how many graduate students we have that are interested in her. Um, although they don't always have professors who who done work on they themselves. So, mm -hmm. uh, so, so, you know, sometimes they have to wander a bit, but, you know, th that's where the American Vey Society, I think, has been, been wonderful because it, it allows these conversations. Um, you get a lot of they and contemporary problems. I mean, I think, you know, people are taught in philosophy uh, about certain political and social problems. They come with that uh, set of concerns. And then they see Vey as uh, somebody who can say something to it. Um, one of the tough things at that point, though, is really letting her say something to it rather than trying to domesticate her and ultimately forcing her into uh, the mold of how we conceive these problems in the first place. Right. Uh, is there more interest coming from philosophy than religious studies, or is it <coughs> hard to tell? I would, well, it's, it's hard to tell. I mean, within North America, the interest in her has almost always been chiefly religious. Uh, political as well, but she hasn't really penetrated political science, political philosophy departments. Uh, I think that's changing uh, a bit now. Madigan thinks of some younger scholars uh, who that actually is their field. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that goes because, again, somebody whose spiritual interests, such as who, that are like hers, um, sometimes has a hard time fitting into secular departments. Right. I mean, how, how do you take some of her spiritual interests and say, this is, you know, the turning point, you know, and that isn't always going to fly um, at certain, in certain departments. What about interest in Vey in the Anglo-speaking world versus the continent? Um, I, I think that the, the interest in her really is quite widespread. Uh, I mean, at, at this point, I, I'm looking at French colleagues and the, the technical stuff that they've been able to do has been, has been really great. Uh, they're almost at the end of publishing or complete works. I think oh, really? I, wow. I, I think there's only one or two volumes. Now, this is somebody who died at the age of 34. Right. That, that's going to run 16 volumes. <laughs> oh, I had heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> that is uh, stunning. <laughs> but there's been a lot of really good uh, scholarly work on her uh, in France. A um, couple of years ago, the Vey Society, the American Vey Society, actually met in Barcelona. Uh, and it was a really interesting conference because 
it meant that we pulled in a whole lot of Europeans who were Anglophones um, and didn't necessarily go to the French Association, which, which is always uh, conducted in, in, in French. I mean, you know, language always becomes a problem and we've tried very hard to make sure that we can integrate as much as possible. Uh, but looking at our meetings, you know, we can see that there, there really is widespread interest uh, throughout Europe uh, and throughout the United States and, and, and Canada. So my final question is one, I had another interview with uh, a Bay scholar, it was with Lisa McCullough, wonderful. Yeah. And I, um, I asked her, what, what, what has it done to you personally, to your life, to wrestle with these kind of ideas for this long? Can you speak to how that's changed you or what, whether it's what kind of challenge it's presented or? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I started so very early. I mean, I was a 24 year old divinity student. Uh, I continued on for doctoral work and I uh, wrote my dissertation on her. And so I don't think so much that she ever provoked a real turnaround in me because there was no place to turn around from, you know, <laughs> when you're that young and, and unformed. Uh, but she very much has affected my outlook on most things. Um, and I, I think it makes a big difference in the way I read a lot of other thinkers. Uh, I th very much makes a difference in terms of the way that I look at current options because she looked at them so very differently. Uh, I mean, we mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, within the North Atlantic liberal philosophy, uh, there is a certain way of thinking of the self and how the self makes moral decisions. But that isn't her. And I learned her really much better than that other philosophy first. So I mean, it's always made me critical. Uh, but I think it, as a result, it gives me a perspective uh, that is not necessarily um, widely shared, but if you wanna be critical, that, that's a good thing. <laughs> Yeah. And how about its impact on you as a pastor? Very much so. Um, <clears throat> Charles Taylor in his book, The, the Secular Age, uh, points out that, you know, the secularity of our age and our, our culture, um, maybe it's some of it's due to science and the disenchantment of the world. Uh, a lot of it actually has to do with religion, which watered it down, uh, who you know, tried to exercise uh, religion and sell it as a sort of form of crowd control. Uh, oh, and good, it makes society better. And you suddenly realize how, how much that short changes the relation between the human spirit and God. Uh, and so I think in that regard as a pastor, she very much always pushed me to make sure to tell people there is something more here than you see. 
There's something more than you're being told about by any number of people. And you really need to explore it and you need to live it. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful. Um, I really appreciate you giving us, sharing your time, but I really appreciate the work you've done. Um, and I, I hope there's a, I hope there's more work to come. Although it sounds like I've got some older Springstead stuff to, to look into. So. <laughs> well, there, there's still some new stuff coming. Um, right now, I'm working with a colleague on a commentary on the need for roots, uh, which will be a matter of chapters by a number of distinguished Bay scholars and uh, Lisa McCullough is one of them uh, as well. And I've also been uh, working on a new book uh, called Having an Inner Life. Mm. It's, it's not, a, not a Bay book, uh, but it's a book that's very much inspired by what we were talking about uh, this morning uh, about, about different values. Um, and how we how we respond to them. I look forward to seeing that. Um, is there any way that the audience can find you or your work or, or also the Bay Society for that matter? The Bay <coughs> uh, Society does have a website, which is simply AmericanVaySociety.org. Uh, a second uh, really very good resource is uh, this colleague of mine, Ron Collins, um, has re recently launched a website or an e-journal uh, called Attention. Really? Uh, it, it comes out as a journal uh, every other month. I think the first issue came in uh, middle, late May. The next one will be out in about a month. Um, and it's called, just simply called Attention. And the web, the address is attentionsw.org. Um, you need to subscribe to it, but it's a free subscription. Uh, and Ron has been absolutely a beaver in, in terms of all of the information that he, he's pulled up uh, and, and put together in that website. Uh, is well, that's a place to go for all things Valian these days. Fantastic. I feel like uh, it's Christmas morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so very, very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Pierce. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.